So in the hot summer of 1806, on a hazy and humid day, these five college students from Williams College gathered together under this cluster of trees in this green field called Sloan's Meadow to talk and to pray. Now here are these five young Christian men gathering together in this very green area to do what God's people have done so many times before and that they would go on to do so many times after, just to talk about the state of their world and to pray for God's blessing. You see, in our text today, the psalmist, like these five young men, begins this beautiful song of praise by simply asking God for his blessing. Turn with me to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now as we learn from these five young college students and from the psalmist's own song of praise, we learn it's appropriate for God's people to plea, to ask, to pray for God's blessing, for his blessing, for his grace, for his favor. But this isn't just some generic type of blessing uh, that the psalmist is asking for. Uh, I remember as a kid um, spending most summers, especially if it was a nice day, just out in the yard. I'd be outside, I'd be playing with my buddies, I'd be outside all day. So I'd come home at night just starving. And I'd come home, my mom would make me wash, wash my hands, I'd sit down at the dinner table. I was in such a hurry to get some food in my stomach, I would sit down and just very flippantly pray, Dear God, please bless this food, amen, so I could tear into my meal. That is not what's happening here. This is not that type of prayer for blessing. It's not generic. It's not vague. It's very specific. It's very meaningful. We know that it's specific and that it's meaningful because the psalmist is intentionally citing a a specific blessing from Numbers chapter 6. Turn with me, if you will, to Numbers chapter 6, where the psalmist has almost word for word cited this blessing. Numbers chapter 6, starting in verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So what is the purpose of this blessing in number six? What is going on there? And more critically, why is the psalmist intentionally drawing from this text? 
Well, we're going to figure all of that out as we study number six, the content of that blessing in its proper context. Now, this portion of number six is often referred to as the Aaronic blessing. Aaronic is just a fancy word referring to the person Aaron that's mentioned there in that passage. Now, the Aaronic blessing is this special priestly blessing in which God gives a blessing to the priests who then pass it on to the entire nation of Israel. That's clear in verse 23. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. And then he goes on and he gives them this blessing. And the text also shows us that God communicates a very special blessing to Moses, who passes it on to Aaron and his sons. His sons being the priests of of Israel. These people who are set aside as mediators of God's grace, who is part of their official priestly duty, impart this blessing on to the entire nation. So we know how this blessing is transmitted from God to Moses to the priests to the people. But what is this blessing all about? <clears throat> well, the Aaronic blessing is a triple blessing. It's made up of three different parts. The first part, the Lord bless you. And keep you. The Lord bless you. It's the more, most general statement in this very specific blessing. When talking about that portion, John Calvin defines the blessing of God by saying, The blessing of God is the goodness of God in action, by which a supply of all good pours down to us from his good favor as from their only fountain. Now, what John Calvin is not saying is that. God is a genie in a bottle who gives us everything we want, any possible thing that might seem good to us, that would prosper us on earth, He will give us. That's not what He means. But He is pointing out that God is the source of goodness for His people. And then the second part of that first section of the Aaronic blessing, and keep you. The Lord bless you and keep you. It's this declaration that part of the favor And of the goodness of God, which is bestowed upon the people, is that God would be their defender, their preserver, their protector from evil, from difficulty, all of it. So we're not only learning what the contents of this blessing include. We're learning things about God that are valuable for us to know. That God is this source, this fountain of goodness He's also our keeper and our protector. The ironic blessing continues, The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Now this phrase, that He makes His face shine upon you, uh, Kylan Delich explained that the face of God is the personality of God turned toward man. And that as a means of His personality being turned toward you, there's this outpouring of grace. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. And in describing how, what it looks like when God turns His face towards His people in this way, in this context, and pours out His grace upon them, Martin Luther has this amazing illustration. So picture yourself, you're outside, it's uh, very, very early, early, early in the day. It's, it's really cold outside, it's very dark You're outside, it's dark, you can't see anything, it's just freezing, you can see your breath, and you're just looking around. Then all of a sudden, you kind of peer off, and 
off into the horizon, the sun begins to just peak over the horizon line. And as it rises higher and higher, slowly this, this light, uh, this, this, this light just kind of covers the land. And as the, as the sun grows higher and higher into the sky, it gets brighter and brighter and it showers the, this cold world with warmth. And until it's heat, until this sun is in the sky in all its glory. And it's giving the world this light and this heat. In a similar way, Luther says that when God makes His face and His grace joyfully shine upon His people, He is exposing them to the beautiful light of Himself. Our sovereign Father, our sacrificial Son, the gracious Spirit, the one true God who reconciles us to God that grafts us into His family. It's this theologically rich and this practically robust blessing that God is giving to His people. That they might experience God in all His glory and that His blessing might be like someone in a dark, cold night experiencing the rising of this light, bright, warm sun. So the blessing continues. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Countenance is again this expression that relates to the face of God. And this expression is referring to a manifestation of God's providential power at work in the lives of His people. The end of which is the people's peace. So the ironic blessing is this tremendous statement from God to His people, uh, expressing His willingness to bless them all with His care, with His protection, with His favor, with His grace, with His presence, with His power, and with His peace. It's an amazing promise to receive from God. And what is noteworthy is verse 27, that this blessing that God gave to the priest wasn't just for the priests. Verse 27, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. That God's intention all along for providing this blessing is that the nation as a whole might experience Him, might know Him. So how does the ironic blessing inform our reading of Psalm 67? Uh, Well, in the vein of number 6, The psalmist in verse 1 is asking for this type of very specific blessing. He says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. Um, It's clear that he is expressing just a strong desire. He's pleading with God. He's praying. He's asking God for this blessing. He's not asking for himself. He says, Uh, Be gracious to us. Bless us. Make your face shine upon us. He's asking that this blessing would be given to the people of Israel. But like the purpose of the Aaronic blessing, Psalm 67 has a particular outcome in mind. You see, while in uh, Numbers chapter 6, the priests are giving a a blessing for the sake of the people, in Psalm 67... The people are ask, or the, the psalmist is asking for a blessing for the people for the sake of the world. And that's the whole big idea 
of the psalm. That God's people might be blessed so that blessing might be relayed to the world. And the psalm conveys three ways that our blessing can influence the world. The first of which is that we can let our blessing by God's grace cause the world to know Him. Verse 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth, Your saving power among all nations. And we see in verse 2 the reason why the psalmist is asking for this very specific, very special, very meaningful blessing in the first place. First, verse 2 starts with that little word, that, which shows us that verse 2 is dependent upon verse 1. It gives us the purpose for why he's asking for this blessing. And that purpose is for making God known. Why? Because making God known is important. And we see it clearly just by how the psalm is structured that he's emphasizing the importance of God and making him known. Uh, my wife and I have this uh, wedding photo. And uh, it was, I really like it. It was taken between uh, the, the ceremony and the reception. We did our pictures at this nice, green, lush park kind of place. And uh, in the middle of the photo is my wife. It's, it's an image of her. And it's a very crisp, it's a very clear, it's a very bright, vivid picture of her in her wedding dress, smiling. And then, and then in the background, things are kind of fuzzy and blurry. And if you keep looking, you'll see this blackish, blurryish sort of blob back there. And that's me in my tuxedo, in the back where I belong. But I'm sure that if you've ever spent any time on Facebook or flipping through someone's wedding album, or if you're just a fan of photography, chances are you've seen a picture where the photographer has intentionally focused in on something in the foreground so that the things in the background it might be set apart. Well, in these two verses, the nations and their great need for our Savior, for God, is so critically important. But the psalmist has sort of placed the nations in the background. And right there in the foreground... Bright and clear and sharp and vivid is our God. There's something critically important about who God is, which is why we need Him. And the psalmist has already alluded to that uh, by giving us a taste in Numbers chapter 6. Specifically in the psalm, the, the psalmist is concerned with making God's way and His saving power known. God's way is to be with His people in deliverance, even in difficult times, which will come, which we know will come. This is not prosperity gospel. He's not going to give you this magical life. We know that. But He'll be with us in deliverance to see us through that. We know that His saving power on this side of the cross not only affects our day-to-day, moment-to-moment circumstantial things that pop up in life, but most prominently, it's evidenced in the saving work of Jesus Christ who came and suffered and died so that we might have our sins forgiven and washed clean, spending eternity in relationship with our Lord and Savior. So verses 1 and 2 are this prayer that God's 
blessing might be with the people so that the people might make him known in the nations. And this goal of making God known in the nations is a major theme throughout all of Scripture. Uh, We see it echoed clearly as God chooses to bless His servant Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 2, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will... And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That it was God's uh, plan to bless his servant Abraham to the end of blessing the world. And what does he do? He he sets apart this people for himself that through them and through Abraham's lineage, he provides a Savior to save us all. Those who place saving faith in Jesus Christ. We see this emphasis on on blessing His people for the sake of making God known in the world echoed in the voice of the prophets. Isaiah 49.6 I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. We see it echoed in the mission of the church in the New Testament. Matthew 28 And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And here we are in Psalm 67. We have this missional psalm written by this person with a missionary's heart. Someone who is so compelled to use all that God has given him to make God known in the world. You see, this is a very mature prayer. This is someone who where there's no hint of selfishness in this song of prayer. He's not saying, Lord, I'll take what you've given me and keep it for myself. There's no hint of pride that what God has given him, he is somehow worthy of in a way that the rest of the world is not. There's no hint of laziness that he doesn't have the time or can't put out the effort to get out there and make God known. He has maturity in his view of why he is on earth, which is the, to use the blessings of God Making God known. It's not about Him. It's about glorifying God. It's about reaching sinners. It's this amazing example for us. So all throughout Scripture, all along, God has had this plan for His people, yet He's also had a heart for the world. And God's plan for His people includes making God known in the world. So what does this mean for you and I? Well, it means that God has a plan for us, but He also has a heart for our neighbors. And God's plan for us includes making God known to our neighbors in our communities. So if God is this amazing God that we know He is who transforms people and saves them, And God wants to be known by the world. And God wants to use you to make Him known to the world. Shouldn't you and I be praying this same prayer? Shouldn't we be examining how God has already blessed us so that we can properly use those blessings to bless the world? Let us be blessed to be a blessing. 
Well, the psalm continues, and while it's appropriate to pray for blessings so that the world might know God, the text also shows us that it's appropriate to pray for blessing so that the world might confess God. Starting in verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Now in verse 3, we have this prayer for the world to praise God. This word in the Hebrew, praise, it's, it's rightly translated praise. It carries with it this connotation of confession. It's a recognizing that God is who He says He is confessing Him as such and outwardly offering worship and praise because He alone is worthy of it. And we know that this confessing, this praising of God is appropriate for those who have come to know Him. In verse 2, the prayer is that the world might know God. And for those who know Him truly, for those who encounter Jesus Christ truly, the proper thing to do is to confess Him as Lord and to praise Him well. This idea that the nations might confess and praise God is so important to the psalmist that he repeats verse 3 and verse 5. The same verse. And the repetition is important. The emphasis here is important. Uh, There is urgency here. There is a real zeal here that God's people might have the heart that God has for glorifying Himself. That God's people might look upon the plight of the unsaved and the unchurched and might respond to them in a way that God wants us to. Making Him known, leading them to confess and to praise. And sandwiched in between these amazing prayers for praise, in verse 3 and verse 5, we have verse 4. And in verse 4, we see that it is joyful news for the nations when they come to a place where they know and confess God. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The, The psalmist understands that making God known is important, that the appropriate response is confessing Him and praising Him. But he also knows that the best possible thing that could ever happen to a sinner is finding out who God is and being able to praise Him. And when a sinner confesses Christ, they can have this unbounding, inexpressible, unspeakable joy just from knowing God, having relationship with Him, and being able to praise their Savior who has saved them. Confession of Christ, joy, gladness, singing, praise, There's just nothing sweeter in this lifetime. And God desires for the nations to take part as well. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 7. Uh, The book of Revelation, a lot of of people, uh, it can be really tricky to understand at times. Uh, John John received this uh, revelatory apocalyptic vision while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. He writes that vision down in a letter. 
That letter is what we have now in, our, in the canon of Scripture as the book of Revelation. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 9 and following, we read, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You see, John has seen that a time will come when people from every nation every tribe, every tongue, really will stand before the throne. They will know Jesus Christ as Messiah. They will confess Him as Lord. And they will worship Him and praise Him as He deserves. Isn't it an amazing thought to think that you and I can use our short times on earth leading people to know and to confess Jesus, that they might someday stand before the throne and praise Him. What a privilege for us. So the psalmist has this drive for unbelievers to uh, experience what the psalmist himself has experienced, knowing and confessing and praising God. The question that you and I really need to wrestle with today is do we have this same desire as well? Are we content with the joy of knowing Christ being just for us? Or like the psalmist, do you feel compelled to share the good news of Jesus with others? As Christians, we don't hear of unbelievers living and dying without Christ and just shrug our shoulders and say, Oh, well, at least I'm okay. No, we're filled with an unbounding desire for the nations to receive and experience Christ as well. This is our desire as the church because this is God's desire. And verse 4 continues. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth, Selah. In other words, let the world confess and praise the Lord with gladness and with joy on the basis of the fact that He is a sovereign leader. He really is a good shepherd, completely in control. This past week, I, I was flipping through the news, and I, I try to stay up to date on things. I don't always do a good job, but I try to either watch the news or go on the internet, and I was just blown away by some of the crazy headlines describing some of the crazy stuff going on in our world. Uh, I wanted to share a couple of those headlines. Three U.S. troops killed by gunmen dressed as ally. Three gunned down in Alabama nightclub shooting. Rhode Island man charged in samurai sword attack. Armed man found near bar linked to missing student. Seeks mourn dead 
from Temple Massacre, violence flares in Egypt's North Sinai, refinery fire likely to spike gas prices. You look around the world, you see people killing each other, you see all of this strategic maneuvering over political direction, whole economies are seemingly crumbling apart. But isn't, amazing, isn't it amazing for us as believers to know that God really is in control in the midst of all of that? That He has a plan and He is good and He is able to carry it out. Don't you think it would be good, it would be valuable for the nations to have this reassurance in God as their good shepherd as well? Let us be blessed to be a blessing. Well, so far we've talked about how the main idea of the psalm is to be blessed by God so that we might bless the world. And some ways of doing that are to let our blessings cause the world to know and to confess God. And in verse 6 and 7, we also see that uh, our blessing can cause the world, by God's grace, to fear Him. Verse 6 and 7. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Uh, Verse 6 provides this image of God causing the earth to be fruitful. This worldwide harvest of of people praising him as a result of his blessing. Uh, And then it continues and closes with this exaltation that the earth might fear God. Now, in our earthly experience, fearing something is such a negative thing. And that to fear something carries with it such negative connotations. But biblically, fearing God is a positive thing. It's exceptionally beneficial for anyone who will take it on. Although fear often carries these negative connotations, uh, uh, fearing God is recognizing Him and standing in awe of Him Um, coming before Him and showing a healthy reverence for His authority over us. We also know that fearing God has bears real-life practical fruit in our lives. Those who fear God uh, obey God. They serve Him. They walk with Him. Fearing God to be a God-fearer is a mark of a believer. It's a fundamental quality for those who know the Lord. There are so many biblical examples of how fearing God is commanded, how it's good for us. I wanted to point you to a few. Genesis 22.12, after Abraham shows this willingness to sacrifice his own son Isaac, God intervenes and he says, He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That this radical act of obedience was good. It was confirmation that Abraham feared God. In Luke chapter 12, when faced with hardship from earthly enemies, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, instructs His disciples to fear God. He says in verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Psalm 115.13 He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Fearing the Lord is this wonderfully 
healthy approach to life that we as Christians can model for the world, that we can teach the world. So let us be a blessing, or let us be blessed to be a blessing. Well, how can you use your blessing to cause the world to know, to confess, and to fear God? One thing you can do is engage the mission. Um, oftentimes we have this, I know I do, we have this con- conception in our, in our heads about missionaries and missions work. And I always think of uh, some guy in some remote jungle or in a hut in Africa, just like very dirty, um, very removed from anything that's familiar to him or her. Um, but I wanted to encourage you to start seeing our community, Boston, as a mission field, and start considering yourself to be a missionary. Uh, Did you know that statistically speaking, there are more evangelical Christians per capita in India than there are in Boston? That an unreached people group is technically a population where 2% or less of the population are evangelical Christians. Boston is right at 2.1%. We're right there, 0.1% away from being considered an unreached people group. That Boston has fewer born-again Christians than any other metropolitan area in the country. So I challenge you to see your community as a mission field and to consider yourself a missionary. Uh, Nowadays, with mission strategy and, and that sort of thing, a lot of times, rather than sending foreigners to some far-off land to to do missions work, they'll invest in training and teaching indigenous people who know the community and know the culture to go in there and and do the good work. Well, you are the people who live in the community. You are the people who know the culture here. No one is better equipped to do the missions work in Boston that needs to be done than you. Making God known that people might confess and praise And fear our Lord. Engage the mission. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is verbally articulate the gospel regularly. Romans 10, 13, and 15 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How will your neighbors know and confess and fear God if you don't open your mouth and tell them who He is? Engage the mission. Share the gospel. Let us be blessed to be a blessing. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in the hot summer of 1806, these five college students from Williams College met in this field under this cluster of trees to talk and to pray. Well, here's the whole story of what happened that day. These uh, five young guys were, were, were in this green field talking. They were talking about the state of their world and how So much of the world doesn't have the gospel and theologizing about mission strategy, particularly in Asia 
And they have their, as they're having this conversation, they look up. And they see these dark, menacing storm clouds just covering the sky. And soon after that, they hear these loud peals of thunder crashing through the air. And then this hard, driving rain starts pouring down on them. And as this thunderstorm moved in upon them, they sought shelter underneath a haystack. And while they were in this haystack waiting for the storm to pass, they were moved to pray. To pray, not for their own benefit or for their own prosperity, but for blessing for the sake of the nations. Uh, As a result of that prayer meeting, um, God moved in their hearts, He moved in their lives, and He moved in the world. You see, Samuel John Mills, who was one of those five guys, soon thereafter founded the American Bible Society and the United Foreign Missions Society, uh, motivated and encouraged by that time of prayer for God's blessing in that haystack. Soon thereafter, after that prayer meeting, inspired by it, the first American Missions Society was founded. The American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. It was created within six years. Uh, By 1812, they were sending missionaries to China. And eventually, they sent missionaries to parts of Southeast Asia, to Hawaii, to China. Within their first 150 years of this missions board being in existence, 5,000 missionaries were sent to 34 different locales all over the world. What is now known as the famous Haystack Prayer Meeting is widely regarded as one of the crucial events that spurred American foreign missions. And in regard to those five guys that prayed in that field that day, God heard their prayer for blessing. He caused His face to shine upon them and he was gracious to them, and he blessed them. And as a result, the kingdom of God was expanded on earth. For these five young guys, praying for God's blessing that the world might know and confess and fear God, countless lives were touched with the gospel of Christ. So shouldn't we also be praying this prayer? Shouldn't we use the blessings that God has given us to bless the world. Five guys prayed in a haystack. God blessed them, and the world was changed. I wonder what He can do with you and I in Boston. Let us be blessed to be a blessing. Let's pray. Dear God, please be gracious to us And bless us and make your face to shine upon us so that you might be known, confessed, and feared on earth. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.